Good morning, everyone. I was quite gutted not to go on the men's weekend, um, but I was away in Kenya, and I'd like to thank uh, those of you who are praying. It was a great time of training people to do outreach through sports. We had about 60 people show up, and they represent about 2,000 people that they work with every week, coaching them, teaching them, and sharing the gospel with them. So to be able to train them and help them in their outreach was a real privilege. And there were some very impactful testimonies. So I came back very encouraged, uh, only to find out that I picked up some kind of bug. So I spent the rest of the week between the toilet and the bedroom and doing a few other things. So if you see me make a dash for it, um, Darren, here are the notes. You can take over. (laughs) Well, we're uh, in Romans 6, as Mark read. as a relief when he read that passage, and not a different one. And it's the first 14 verses. I'm not sure if it's just Andrew's got a message for me or perhaps God is trying to tell me something, but the last time I preached it was on the sin of Achan, and in this passage sin is mentioned more than 11 times, so I'm beginning to feel maybe either I'm the resident expert in sin or God is trying to tell me something. But anyway, we're supposed to preach from our own experience, so I will preach from my experience as an expert sinner. Um, Well, Paul begins this passage with a very strange question. It says in verse 1, What shall we say then? Shall we go on sinning so that grace may increase? I don't suppose you've asked yourself that question very many times, or hopefully not. Should I do something wrong today just to experience a bit more of God's grace? As it stands, it sounds a bit of a crazy question, although there are some people who've developed that into a full-blown theology, that you need to carry on sinning in order to receive more and more of God's grace. And a famous monk by the name of Rasputin was someone who believed in that. Um, So people can take this question completely out of context and uh, get completely the wrong idea. But when we see that question there, it helps us to go back a little bit and understand why Paul is asking that question. And when we think about Romans, it's a letter that Paul writes from Corinth um, to to the church in Rome that he really doesn't have much to do with. He knows people there but he's not trying to sort out some of their issues. So he's a lot freer to develop a long theological treatise, if you like, of his gospel. And he begins in chapter 1 saying, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. It's the power of God for salvation. And then he develops kind of a theology of his gospel in the next few chapters, showing as he goes in from chapter 1 and 2 that everyone, whether they're Jew or Gentile, is a sinner. Nobody is able to keep the law. The Jews can't keep their law, and we can't keep, we Gentiles can't keep whatever moral law we choose to follow, Um, whatever that may be. We're not able to live up to even our own conscience's demands. And so what he says in chapter 3, verse 9, that as a consequence, everyone, without exception, is under the power of sin. And that means we're in a desperate situation because we're aliens from God. And so what God did, Paul says, is he stepped in and provided a righteousness that doesn't involve any kind of law keeping because it comes through Christ and him alone. And he says this is a gift. We have justification by grace based on Christ's sacrifice. And so Paul then goes on in chapter 4 to explain how we receive that. We receive it through faith. And he uses the example of Abraham, the father of faith, who before there was a law, before the circumcision, made that uh, statement of believing in God, and, and it says it was credited to him as righteousness. 
And so because it's of faith, it means it can complete, our salvation is completely of God's grace. There's nothing we can do to earn it and nothing we need to do. We just need to receive it by faith because it's of grace. And then as he comes into chapter 5, he begins chapter 5, uh, 5 verse 1 by saying, Therefore, since we have been justified through faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have gained access by faith into this grace in which we now stand. And so we have this amazing situation that we've moved from being all sinners under condemnation to those of us who have faith are now in this position of grace before God, with peace with God, justified. And as he goes on in chapter 5, he carries on and says um, in the last few verses, reading from verse 18, Consequently, just as the result of one trespass was condemnation for all men, so also the result of one act of righteousness was justification that brings life for all men. <coughs> for just as through the disobedience of the one man the many were made sinners, so also through the obedience of the one man <coughs> excuse me, the many will be made righteous. And here's where we get the context of our question. Verse 20, the law was added so that the trespass might increase. In other words, as God gave the law, men became aware that actually they were doing wrong. And then he says this, but where sin increased, grace increased all the more. So that just as sin reigned in death, so also grace might reign through righteousness to bring eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Where sin increased, grace increased all the more. So what shall we say then? Shall we go on sinning so that grace may increase? Where sin is, grace is all the more. And this is, if you like, the one thing we have to keep in mind as we go through the rest of this passage. We need to have this fundamental of God's incredible, deep, unsearchable, rich grace in our minds before we try and look at what Paul is talking about in terms of dealing with sin and victory over sin. Where sin is, God's grace is even more. We could look at what he said already in chapter 5. We have peace with God. We have reconciliation with God, justification, the hope of sharing his glory. We have life, freedom from condemnation. We could go on in Romans and discover more of this incredible grace. We are more than conquerors. We've been adopted to be his children. We will never be separated from his love, as we sang earlier. If we look into Ephesians, just reading a little bit there, of what it says of God's grace, Ephesians chapter 1. I uh, don't feel like you have to turn to it. I'll read it. Paul, pray, Paul says this and in verses 5 to 7. In love he predestined us to be adopted as his sons through Jesus Christ in accordance with his pleasure and will to the praise of his glorious grace, which he has freely given us in the one he loves. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins in accordance with the riches of grace that he lavished on us with all wisdom and understanding. So as we approach this passage where Paul is really talking about dealing with sin and living in freedom from sin, we need to understand that underlying that is this idea of God's incredible grace. We can't start without that foundation. And I heard a preacher preaching on this passage once and saying it's a bit like when you paint with watercolors, which I know absolutely nothing about. I got a bit distracted on YouTube yesterday watching these tutorials. It's good fun. 
But the idea is that when you're painting a picture, at least at beginning level, you paint your background, whether it's the blue sky or the green field, and you kind of leave it to dry a little bit before you move on and bring in more detail and more colors and shades. So what I'm trying to do here is paint a picture of God's grace as the canvas for everything else we're going to talk about this morning. This incredible grace, has that really captured your mind and your heart? Because we need that to set in, if you like, sink in a bit before we talk about what Paul goes on to say. It's like, like the blank canvas, I think they call it the first wash that you put on that sets the tone for everything else. Now, if anyone's a painter, you can come up and tell me what I've got wrong. But that's the general idea. We're setting this incredible wash of God's grace that is fundamental to everything else so that we can actually understand that wherever sin is, grace abounds even more. And we need to grab hold of that. You can sin a thousand times the same way, and God is still there the thousand and first time to forgive you. You can fail miserably tomorrow morning after having celebrated the communion, and God's grace is still there to receive you as his child and forgive you. And we need that wash before we move on. Now, Paul, of course, doesn't leave it at that. <clears throat> he asks the question, and then he answers, by no means, as it says in the NIV, or what it originally says is, may it never be. I like the translation of J.B. Phillips, which was written for another time, for contemporary England, several, 50 years ago or so, and he puts it this way. He says, what a ghastly thought that I should go on sinning to experience God's grace. And it is just that. May it never be. May we never enjoy God's grace so much that we want to sin to carry on. And indeed, if we really get to grips with God's grace, then that question becomes redundant. We won't want to sin and carry on in that. But God's grace does mean we can always return to him with open arms. However, I just want to say one little caveat. It does not, God's grace, yes, means we have that open relationship with God, but it doesn't remove the consequences of our sin. Paul is very clear elsewhere in Galatians that he says, don't be deceived. God is not mocked. Whatever you reap, you will sow. So if you sow to the flesh, you'll reap from the flesh. If you sow to the spirit, you'll reap from the spirit. And Paul has already been accused, if we looked back in chapter 3, verse 8, he's already been accused of teaching people to do evil so that good may come. And he says, that's exactly not what I'm teaching. So we're not saying we have a free grace to get away with anything and it doesn't matter. No, we're just saying God's grace is so amazing that he understands our frailty, our humanness, our failure, and he will always receive us back. He will always open his arms to us. But verse 2 <clears throat> makes it clear that, that, that this is not the theology we want to develop of, of sinning to receive God's grace. By no means. And he, Paul says, we died to sin, so how can we live, it, live in it any longer? It should be something so unnatural to us that we don't do it. And so then Paul kind of moves on to develop what he means by this idea of di dying to sin. And that's what we're going to look at now. So we have the underlying idea that God's grace is there. But then Paul says in the next few verses, um, up to about verse 10, he talks about two different concepts. First, he talks about identifying with Christ in his death and then identifying with Christ in his resurrection. And we're going to look at those two side by side. So in verses 3 to 4, he says this, we were, 
well, he says first in verse 3, oh, don't you know that all of us who are baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were therefore buried with him through baptism into death. So at our baptism as Christians, we identify with Christ in his death. Now I think here Paul is using baptism as part of the conversion process. So if you haven't been baptized, it doesn't necessarily mean this process hasn't happened in your life. This is a spiritual reality that the Holy Spirit makes true of us when we believe and trust in Christ. But it becomes very real and very evident to us when we see it in the whole baptism in water baptism. But Paul is talking about spiritual realities that we don't see with our eyes. So when Christ died, Paul says, we died with him because we're in union with him. So whatever happened to Christ has happened to us through the Spirit. It's an act of God's Spirit in our lives. And he says in verse 4, the seal of this <coughs> is that we were buried with him. Now, you know who you bury, and that's dead people. Now, I was uh, looking online the other day, Metro News, reliable source, says, gave a headline, dead man comes back to life at his own funeral and cries. Apparently some guy in China had been diagnosed, well, the doctor said he was dead. They started to bury him, and then they heard him crying in his own coffin. I think I would too if I woke up in my coffin. Um, but anyway, they took him to hospital, and uh, there he was, back to life. But when you bury someone, it's because they're dead, dead and buried. And Paul wants to say, look, you are so dead, you've been buried. This is not a question of you're a little bit dead, and there's a little bit of you still alive. No, you have died with Christ, and to prove it, you were buried with Christ, just as he was buried. So baptism is that symbolism of going into the water, dying, staying under for three days, well, three seconds. You're buried, you're dead, and then you come out again as a new life. So we have died with Christ. And Paul says in verse 6, um, he kind of expands the met metaphor and says, not just died any old death, but we know that our old self was crucified with him, so that the body of sin might be done away with. He says that in Galatians 2.20, I've been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. So we have this key teaching Paul is giving us that we have died with Christ. It's a past event. When Christ died on the cross and we put our trust in him, the Holy Spirit has made that a reality in our life. Now, you may not feel very dead to sin. Um, sometimes it seems all too alive and well and kicking in our own lives. There's a struggle. There's a battle. But the reality, the spiritual reality is we have died to sin. And those are the consequences, Paul says. Verse 2, how can we live in it any longer if we've died to it? Our body, he says in verse 6, has been brought to nothing. Again, in verse 6, we're no longer enslaved to sin. And then verse 7, as a consequence of dying, anyone who has died has been freed from sin. So the amazing truth Paul is teaching us is that through our identification with Christ, we have died to sin and we've been set free from sin. Mike, I would expect a hallelujah there. Falling asleep on the job. That's pretty amazing, I think. The spiritual reality, however much we mess up and don't feel it, the spiritual reality is that we have died with Christ and we've been set free from sin. It's as if we've been transferred, if you like, to a new realm where we're no longer under sin's dominion. Sin used to have its way with us. We couldn't say no to it. 
because it was our master. But Paul says, now you've died, you're set free from it. So we've, we're united with Christ in his death. But throughout those verses, every time Paul says you've died with him, he also makes it clear that we've been raised with him. And it follows on as a certainty. Um, verse 5, if we've been united with him like this in his death, we will certainly also be united with him in his resurrection. We're not dead in the water, if you like. We've been raised again to a new life. And what he says in verse 4 means that we have, because we were buried with him through baptism into death, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may live a new life. In the ESV it says we can walk in newness of life. So as we identify with Christ in his death, we also identify with him in his resurrection. I think it's important because we can get hung up a little bit and just say, you know, I'm just a poor old sinner, can't help myself, always doing wrong. We kind of be a bit of spiritual Eeyore, if you like, or a spiritual puddle glum. And we kind of just say, well, you know, it's just me, just an ordinary, miserable sinner. And we never expect to see any kind of victory in our life because we're so hung up on the power sin has over us. But what Paul says here is, no, the amazing news is that you live with Christ's resurrection power. Just jump back to Ephesians chapter 1 again. <coughs> I can find it. Verses 18 onwards, Paul says this, I pray also that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened in order that you may know the hope to which he has called you the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints and his incomparably great power for us who believe. That power is like the working of his mighty strength, which he exerted in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly realms. And he goes on. But that same power that raised Christ from the dead, that resurrection power is at work in us. So we're not just dead with Christ, but we've been raised with Christ and spiritually, that power is at work in us. God's resurrection power. And Paul says to the Philippians, his prayer is, I, I make it my aim to know him and to experience the power of his resurrection. The resurrection power is available to us in our daily life to walk in newness of life. Thank you, Mike. Because we've died with him, we've also been raised with him. One follows the other without fail. And because we've been raised with him, we can live in newness of life to God. We are incredibly rich spiritually. The message puts it like this. Each of us is raised into a light-filled world by our Father so that we can see where we're going in our new grace-sovereign country. We've been set free from the rule of sin and death. We've been transferred into a new country where grace rules. And so we can always come to our Father again and again. So Paul says, grace, where sin abounds, grace abounds all the more. That's our platform for everything. We've been identified with Christ in his death. We've been buried, which proves we've died. And we've now identifying with Christ in our resurrection. That power is at work in us. And so you think, well, that sounds amazing. Job done, go home, no more sin. 
Well, we all know that's not the reality. When we go home, we're tempted, tested, and we fail. As John Wesley puts it, commenting on this, he says, sin remains, though it no longer reigns. We've been set free from its reign. It cannot rule us, but it's still there for us to deal with. And so although we've died with Christ, although we've been buried with Christ, although we've been raised with Christ, we still live and deal with our own sinful nature. So there is still a battle, and that's what Paul then talks about at the end of this passage. In verses 11 to 13, he deals with how do we walk out this new life. And he says in verse 11, In the same way, count yourselves dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. And I think the first battle we see is the battle in our minds. Paul says, count yourselves. Another way of putting it is consider yourself. That word can be take into account, think about, ponder, believe, if you like, be of the opinion. All those kind of meanings come through. The first place where we win this battle is actually in our minds, trying to understand these truths. We've, been, we've died with Christ, we've been raised with him, and reckoning it, believing it to be true thinking on it until it becomes true in our life. And so it's a battle in our mind. And as, as if you look through the passage, you'll see that Paul is quite keen on emphasizing what we need to know. In verse 3, he asks, Don't you know that all of us who are baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? Then in verse 6, he says, For we know that our old self was crucified with him. Verse 9, For we know that since Christ was raised from the dead, he cannot die again. There are things we need to know as Christians. And there, this passage is key to that. In 1 Corinthians 6, Paul asks the question, don't you know, six times in a short section. And each time he asks it, he's asking it, suggesting that they really ought to know. It's sort of a rhetorical device to say, you really should know this. And I think um, as Christians, maybe we can dumb down our faith a little bit and just say, it's, well, it's just a relationship with Jesus. Just me and Jesus chilling out. That's, don't need to read the Bible, it's just me and him. That's all I'm worried about. But it's not like that. We need to know and understand and dwell on these truths to make them a reality in our lives. Otherwise, they won't sink in. Otherwise, we will be facing defeat continually instead of on the path to victory, which is, I think, where we all want to be. We'll never be completely free from sin. But as we begin to get to grips with these truths, we can begin to see Christ's resurrection power transform the way we live, the way we think. And so Paul focuses a lot on what we need to know. And of course, he says in Romans 12, too, later on, we need to be renewing our minds continually. So we need to know things. He, he challenges Timothy in 2 Timothy 2 and 3 to rightly handle the word of truth, to devote himself to the scriptures. And that's important for us to grasp hold of these truths. Now, of course, I'm not talking about factual knowledge. I'm talking about knowledge that really sinks in. I can't remember when the conversation was, but I remember uh, mentioning that we live opposite the Walls Freezer, the big white building over in um, wherever it is near the roundabout. And uh, there's a large colony of seagulls there. And I don't know how the conversation came up, but Mark, the fount of all knowledge, said, that's the largest inland colony of seagulls in the UK. He knew that fact about them, but he doesn't know the experience of living 100 meters away from them with all that that entails, which you can imagine. 
That's the kind of knowledge we need, which is a knowledge that really takes hold and is lived out day by day. So we need to study, yes, but it needs to sink in. And that's why Paul says, consider, think about it, ponder it, be of the opinion, believe it, that you are dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. So count yourselves dead to sin, as the NIV says. It's something we've got to do in our minds every day, moment by moment. And it doesn't come naturally, and it won't happen all the time, and we will fail. But there is a battle going on for your mind. And we know the world is a voice, a very strong voice, and Satan brings in a voice as well. And So who we listen to in that battle is key. There is a battle going on for your mind. Count yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Another area of the battlefield that Paul then moves on to say is in our bodies. Verses 12 to 13. Do not let sin reign in your mortal body so that you obey its evil desires. Don't offer the parts of your body to sin as instruments of wickedness, but rather offer yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and offer the parts of your body to him as instruments of righteousness. Paul suggests it in two different ways. First, negative. Don't offer yourselves and your body to be, to be instruments of sin. And then positively, do offer them to God. And it's very clear it's in the body that the battlefield for sin carries on. Um, for some reason, we decided it would be a good idea for Eric to learn guitar. So he has an instrument, a guitar, an instrument of music that we thrust into his hands every night. And we expect some kind of music to come out, usually after about five minutes of protesting why you shouldn't practice. But he gets on with it, and lately some good things have been coming out. That's an instrument of music that when you give it to him, he produces music. Our bodies can be instruments of righteousness or unrighteousness, depending on who we give it to. And if you give your body to sin, it's going to grab it with both hands and say, thank you very much, get on with sinning. And then we'll, our body will start to be under sin's control again. So Paul says, don't even offer it to sin. And he's very sort of graphic in this, and the members of your body, the parts of your body. I think in the newer NIV it kind of smooths it over a bit. But it is our body parts. That's what we sin with. We sin with our tongue when we speak ill of other people. James chapter 3 is all about the right and wrong use of the tongue. And he concludes, how can the same tongue that praises God on Sunday morning curse his brothers, leaders, whoever, on Monday morning? My brothers, it shouldn't be that way. And when we look in the scriptures, we see a very um, dynamic way of speaking about sin. Psalm 1 talks about, blessed is the man who does not walk with sinners or stand with the evildoers or sit in the seat of scoffers. It's very sort of dynamic involving your body. Sin involves us, uh, it involves our bodies. And I particularly like how it describes it in Proverbs 7. Um, you may remember it's the story of the foolish young man who's seeking out the adulteress. And he says, I saw among the simple, I noticed among the young men, a youth who lacked judgment. He was going down the street near her corner, that's the adulteress, walking along in the direction of her house at twilight as the day was fading, as the dark night set in. And then it talks about how she persuades him and entices him and says, with persuasive words, she led him astray. All at once, he followed her like an ox going to the slaughter. Hopefully that's not describing our process of adultery, but it is describing 
the process we go through of spiritual adultery when we sin. We start dilly-dallying around. We walk towards whatever that sin is for you, whether it's anything you, you can think of in your own mind, and we fool around with it as the young man, this man without judgment, walks near it, comes to the corner where he knows she'll be. That's his first part wrong, and it's his body going with it. Then he goes at twilight, at night, when he kind of knows that's what's going to happen. And that's how we kind of fall into sin. We just, well, I know it's kind of wrong, but I'm just doing this. And then it says, all at once, he followed her like an ox going to the slaughter. Sin's persuasiveness gets to him, and he blows it. He ends up committing adultery. And I think that's what the process, if you like, we often go through. We fool around, mess about, and then all of a sudden, we just can't resist anymore. <clears throat> that's why Paul says to Timothy, flee. You know, if you're being tempted, don't hang around, run, run for it. So the, the negative Paul is saying is don't offer your bodies. Don't even give sin an opportunity. And the positive is do offer your body to God. And he, he directly contrasts it. He says, you know, don't offer the parts of your bodies to sin as instruments of wickedness. And then he says, offer yourselves to God. But then he says, offer the parts of your body, again, our body, our body parts, to him as instruments of righteousness. And that needs to be what we do day by day. God, here I am. Here's my lips. That's that song, take me as I am, whatever it is. And as I offer up everything to thee. And we offer ourselves to God as instruments of righteousness. So instead of being like the moth fluttering about the light and getting burned, get on with doing something good and let your light shine so that other people can see God in you. Get on with good. Don't flitter around. Again, I like how the message puts it. He, um, in the translation it says, that means you must not give sin a vote in the way you conduct your lives. Don't give it the time of day. Don't even run little errands that are connected with that old way of life. Throw yourselves wholeheartedly and full-time, remember you've been raised from the dead, into God's way of doing things. Now, I really like how he says it. Don't even run little errands that are connected to that old way of life. A complete break. Get on with doing something good. Throw yourself wholeheartedly into serving God. What Paul does in later on in the rest of the chapter <coughs> is really flesh out this argument a lot more. If you read on in verses 16 to 22, which we don't have time for, Paul begins to say, Either you offer yourselves to God or you offer yourselves to sin. You're either slave to God or slave to sin. There's no middle ground. And so he encourages them, offer yourself to God. And, and the fruit of it is sanctification. And we talk about sanctification being a process, but it's a process of every day offering yourself, your body, to God to serve him. And I think it's important we remember that. Now this is a battle, and I've said we will fail. And perhaps that's why Romans 7 comes after Romans 6 with Paul's testimony of his own struggle with sin, where he says, you know, I end up doing the very thing I hate is what I end up doing. And so again, I want to remind you of that canvas of grace, if you like. And we'll finish here with verse 14. Sin shall not be your master because you are not under law, but under grace. Yes, we will fail. But sin can no longer tell us how to live because we're not living under it anymore. 
We're living in the freedom of God. We're living under grace. <clears throat> so although we fail and struggle, we can take heart. Romans 8 follows Romans 7. Romans 7 is all about the failure to live up to what we know is right. And Romans 8, those amazing words begins, There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So that canvas of grace is still there. God is still there as our loving Father and he will receive us. So remember, as we finish, where sin abounds, grace abounds all the more. We've died with Christ, we've been baptized into his death, buried with him, and raised with him. So let's live that out by faith, offering ourselves to God daily, so that we do experience the power of his resurrection at work within us. But again, that canvas of grace, where sin abounds, grace abounds all the more.